This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Uh, today we're talking about neuroscience and the human person, and we're going to ask a question uh, if neuroscience and the soul are compatible. So I'm going to um, introduce the concept of what's called localization in clinical neuroscience. We're going to talk about the development of localization through history. We're going to ask, does everything essentially human localize to the brain? We're going to discuss correlations between mental states and brain states. We're going to ask, is the mind identical to the brain? Or does the brain generate the mind? Or are the body and mind two separate entities interacting, two separate substances? We're going to briefly look at Aristotelian and Thomistic metaphysics. And then we're going to make some concluding remarks on the human person. Okay, so we're going to get going. All right, that's the human brain right there. It's a, that's a real human brain. And um, has anyone ever touched one of these before? We got, some, we got some folks in here. That's great. That's fantastic. So uh, it's a very impressive structure, really impressive organ. So perhaps one of the most complex things in the universe is the human brain. It's 86 billion neurons, roughly, in the brain, and at least an equal number of glial cells, which are support cells for neurons. Weighs about three pounds. If you touch it with your, with your hands and feel it, it has like a mushroom-like texture. It doesn't look that impressive just looking at it, but it's, it's a really um, amazing organ to study and to dedicate your life to trying to understand it. I really became fascinated with the brain when I was in medical school. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I got into medical school. But quickly in the neuroscience curriculum, I started to really fall in love with studying the human brain. I liked it so much that I got a job over the summer doing what's called CNS dissection, where we'd have cadavers and we would remove the brains from the cadavers and we would slice them into, into pieces and different slices and we'd study it. and. Uh, teach other medical students or high schoolers neuroanatomy and learned a lot, learned a lot at that time about the brain. Uh, and then I liked it so much that I became a neurologist. So I, you know, I dedicated my, my life or part of my life to studying this and trying to fix people who have problems with their brains. Um, one of the things that neurologists are particularly well known for is our ability to localize, okay? And this is just a word that means the process of locating the site of damage within the nervous system, okay? So there's damage in the nervous system. It's our job to find out where that is and to treat it, okay? And this requires a lot of skill. You have to master the neurological examination. You have to have extensive knowledge of neuroanatomy and physiology and knowledge of thousands of different diseases, Neurologists can also localize normal function in the brain. When we do our examination, we find that things are normal. That represents normal activity in the brain. Okay? So that's the concept of localization. And it has a long history. So if you look back through antiquity, in, uh, agent e in ancient <coughs> Egypt, they thought that the cognitive faculties, our cognitive faculties, our ability to think and understand and these types of things were located in the heart. So when a pharaoh died or someone of importance died, they'd take out all the organs out of the pharaoh and they'd 
preserve them for the afterlife, but not the brain. They thought it was just a useless glob of fat. So they would get a hook through the ethmoid bone and they would just scrape it out and throw it away. And uh, so not a high view. And the ancient Greeks, they used to debate two different positions, encephalocentrism versus cardiocentrism. So we have all these cognitive faculties. Where do they locate? Our ability to think and reason. Is it in the brain or is it in the heart? So Aristotle thought it was in the heart. He thought the brain was just this thing that cools the blood, uh, which, is, which is actually true. It does. The, the um, hypothalamus does have a role in thermoregulation. So he wasn't totally wrong, but it does a lot more than that. Okay. And then encephalocentrists were people like Hippocrates. Okay. So that was a debate back then. If you fast forward a few hundred years, you'll get to um, Galen of Pergamon. And he was a physician to gladiators and to soldiers. So in the arena, someone would sustain a, a battle to the head or, a ba or, or a, an injury to the head or an injury to the body. And he would kind of send his minions out and take notes and analyze what happened. And he made a lot of observations. One of the observations that he made was that if someone was hit in the head and he observed the damage, he realized that there was a connection between how close the damage was to the ventricular system, which is a fluid-filled area in the center of your brain that produces cerebral spinal fluid. So like a football player, if they hit their head when they're playing football, the cerebral spinal fluid coats the outside of the brain and protects them from getting injuries. Uh, but it's made in the center of the brain, these things called ventricles. But he realized the damage, the closer the damage was to these ventricles, the worse cognition he's, he would notice. So he came up with what was called the ventricular doctrine, which held that our cognitive faculties, our ability to reason and think, were located in the ventricles, uh, which of course is not true. But this held for over a millennium, until about the time of Descartes, where Descartes uh, saw that the pineal gland was this area where the soul, the separate substance, interacted with the body through the pineal gland. We now know the pineal gland uh, helps with uh, the production of melatonin. Okay, So uh, that ventricular doctrine held for, for quite some time. Uh, perhaps one of the most fun theories of all time was um, France Gall and phrenology. I don't know if you guys have taken like basic psychology here, but you've probably learned about phrenology. So the idea here is that our cognitive faculties localize to the cortex, and that sounds pretty reasonable. But then the cortex exerts a pressure on the skull, and the bones of the skull actually form and represent the cortex under it so that a physician could actually go and measure different areas of the skull and make psychological assessments. So they could like measure the zygomatic arch or the uh, temporal bone. And they could make all sorts of claims about this, like this person has a, a predisposition towards murder or a propensity towards curiosity based off of different sizes uh, of the skull. If this had worked out, I think this is what I would have done because it would have been a lot of fun. Um, so that theory uh, held for some time and there was actually like I don't know, 26 journals or something like that dedicated to this. Many of them were peer-reviewed. Localization really starts to take off here in the 19th century and in the 20th century. So for a lot of time through history, people were not allowed to do post-mortem analysis or an autopsy on folks. 
But this started to change with time. So what you could do as a neurologist or as a clinician is you could follow people who had neurological diseases. For example, uh, one person was followed by Pierre Paul Broca, who's a famous neurologist. And he followed someone that had a stroke to the inferior frontal lobe or the interior frontal gyrus on the left side of the brain. And this person had difficulty communicating. So like right now, I'm using that area in my brain, the inferior frontal gyrus on the left side as I'm talking to you. But if you have a stroke there, you get expressive aphasia. So you have difficulty finding words and expressing yourself. So he had a patient who had this and he wondered what's causing this in the brain. So he followed the patient for a number of years and the patient died. And then he did an autopsy and he saw that there was necrosis, there was damage to the inferior frontal gyrus. And he located expressive language in this area. Uh, contemporaries like Carl Wernicke, who is a German uh, physician, localized receptive language. So as I'm talking to you right now, I'm using expressive language, which Broca discovered, but you're using your ability, uh, your receptive language as you're hearing me speak. And he localized that to the superior temporal lobe on the left side. Okay, and there's a connection between the two called the arcuate fasciculus. If you move forward to John Hewlings Jackson, so he's the father of epilepsy and a great neurologist. And same thing, so he would uh, take really meticulous notes on people with epilepsy, seizure disorders. And he would note how their seizures started and, and what their body did during these events. And then he was able to do an autopsy after. And he was able to map out the brain based off of what he saw clinically. And if you see in this picture, there's like a, a man that's over the surface of the brain right there. So that's called the homunculus. So if you look at that picture, you'll see if someone starts to have a seizure in a particular part of the frontal lobe, the precentral gyrus, if you look where the lips are, so the seizure might start in the face and you start to see their face twitch. Like if you're on an epilepsy monitoring unit, you'll start seeing the patient's face twitching. You know, uh oh. And then all of a sudden their hand starts convulsing and then their arm starts convulsing and then their torso, then their leg. That's called a Jacksonian march named after John Hewlings Jackson. So he discovered this somatotopic representation of the brain. Uh, and also had some thoughts on sensory function as well. If you fast forward to the 20th century, then you have Wilder Penfield, who's a very famous neurosurgeon. And if you look at that top picture, there's a picture of uh, someone who's had a craniotomy, so part of the skull was removed, and then the dura and different layers, and then you, you're exposed to the brain right there. So if someone has like medically intractable epilepsy or they have a brain tumor, then sometimes you have to cut this out. Okay, so what he would do is make sure that he wasn't cutting out delicate cortex. So he would remove part of the skull and then he would send electrical currents to the brain and a person's arm would move or they'd feel sensation. The person's awake during this. You don't have pain receptors on the brain. So they're awake and they'll, and I've been in these surgeries and they, they say, oh, I, I, I feel my arm moving. You're moving my arm or, or I feel sensation in my arm. You're, you're stimulating something. And, and they, they tell you what's going on. But it went further than that. He actually even localized uh, in the temporal lobe, he localized memory. So if he stimulated certain areas in the lateral temporal lobe, the person would have flashbacks. So they would have, they would have memories of things, okay? And then many of you may have also heard about uh, this. This is Phineas Gage. So... Again, in psychology, 
So Phineas Gage was a railroad worker. And uh, so to get big boulders out of the way, what you would do is you'd put these holes in the boulders and you'd put dynamite down through them and you'd get a steel rod and you'd like shimmy it down, but it sparked and it ignited the dynamite. And the pole or the steel rod uh, went flying out, went through uh, his facial bones, through the left part of his brain and shot out the other side and landed many, many yards down the way. And he survived, uh, which was really unbelievable. But what they noticed was he was like a different person. Um, he was like a gentle and kind soul. And then he became uh, kind of mean and aggressive. So he had these drastic changes in personality. Okay. Also what we call executive function, like his ability to plan and see patterns and uh, judgments and many other things change. So the left frontal lobe was thought, well, maybe the fr left frontal lobe is responsible for those functions. Uh, this is electroencephalography. So I spend a lot of my time reading these studies. These, this is the electrical activity of the brain. So we monitor this in folks with epilepsy or different uh, disorders of cognition. And we localize where seizures may be coming from. Then that was invented by uh, Hans Berger in 1924. In the 1970s, CT scans of the head become more common. So uh, start to come into uh, clinical practice. So you see a CT scan, a plain CT scan of the head. And then in the corner, you see what's called a CT angiogram looking at blood vessels. And this also helped localize things. In the 1980s, MRI comes out, which uses, uh, which is magnetic resonance imaging. And it uses um, magnetic fields and radio frequencies to take really vivid, wonderful pictures of the brain. And um, it's really remarkable. You know, I, I spent all this time kind of cutting into cadavers and studying the, the brains. And, but an MRI, I mean, it's nearly just as accurate. It's, it's like holding the brain in your hand. It's, it's this really wonderful technology that we have. Again, helping localize things. So um, I teach medical students mostly, so I often give them case studies. But I'm going to give a case study to you guys just to see how all of this comes together. So a 73-year-old man presents to the emergency department with acute onset right-sided paralysis. So he's weak on the right side, can't move the right side. Immediately, I know that this is going to be the left side of the brain, okay? Gaze fixation to the left. So the eyes are stuck to the left. I, I try to get the patient to move the eyes to the right, but they're stuck to the left, okay? So um, that's going to be the frontal eye field on the left is damaged, okay? And then inability to speak and follow commands. So Broca's areas. Uh, affected on the left, and Wernicke's area is affected on the left. So what I would ask here uh, to my medical students is, where is the site of damage within the nervous system? Where is the lesion, is, is how I typically uh, say it. I say, is it cortical? Is it subcortical? Is it brainstem? Is it spinal cord? Is it um, nerve root? Is it plexus? Is it a peripheral nerve? Is it the neuromuscular junction? Is it the muscle? Where's the lesion? Uh, what side is it on and what's causing it? And as you get better at, at you know, clinical medicine, uh, specifically neurology, you get much better at this. And the students, by the end of the rotation, can start understanding this and be able to answer these questions with some degree of accuracy. For a neurologist who's done this for a while, you can just open up the door and look and you know. I mean, you get really good at this after a while. So um, that person comes in and we get a bunch of images, right? 
So we get the CT scan of the head. It looks pretty normal. It looks pretty normal. It's important to note on imaging here that in neuroimaging, the right is the left and the left is the right, okay? So A looks pretty good. We get B, and I don't have a little pointer, but what we see in image B is that the left middle cere uh, cerebral artery is occluded, it's blocked, there's a thrombus there. So the person's not getting blood supply uh, to, that, to the left side of their brain. Okay, I don't know if the, yeah, the arrow doesn't work on here either, that's okay. So then you look at the next image and there's an area that you just see is relatively more blue. That relatively uh, more blue area is the area of neurons that are dead, okay, uh, from the stroke. If you look at the next, er the next uh, image in C, you see that there's a very large red area. That's the area that's going to die if you don't intervene. So then we insert a catheter into the groin. We go up with uh, a sophisticated wire and we suck out the clot. And um, you see in image E, now that blood vessel's open again. And then you get a, a follow-up MRI and you see that the stroke is roughly the same size as the blue region uh, in image uh, C, okay? So um, this is neuroscience at its finest. You know, we're able to help out patients who are very sick. Uh, I don't know if any of you are planning on going into neuroscience, but it's an absolutely wonderful field, especially clinical neuroscience, and you can make a really big difference in the lives of people. If you fast forward a little bit, around 2000, 1990s, um, and then to the early 2000s, you start to get functional MRIs coming out. They have very little utility in clinical practice, uh, with one exception, there, it's very helpful for epilepsy patients. So patients who have intractable epilepsy, we used to have to do this procedure called the WADA procedure, where you'd insert a catheter into the groin and, and you would uh, put it all the way up to the carotid artery and you would inject a barbiturate into one half of the brain. And one half of the brain would go to sleep and the other half of the brain is awake. And it's a very odd feeling. Okay, I doubt anyone's had that, but it's a very odd feeling. <laughs> So you do that to uh, localize what side of the brain memory is on and what side of the brain language is on so you don't cut it out. And then to double check, to be careful, you go through the other side and put the other half of the brain awake after the other half wakes up. So it's, it's a very awkward experience and, and sometimes you have to do this in children. But functional MRI does have a good utility there in terms of uh, avoiding that test. We can use functional MRI to localize memory and language. And it's fairly accurate. So in the 19th century, we had motor and sensory function, which was discovered to reside within specific locations of the brain. Expressive and receptive language was localized to specific regions in the frontal lobe and the temporal lobe, respectively. Personality was seen to be in the frontal lobe. Uh, in the 20th century, memory localized to certain regions within the temporal lobe. Uh, and then in the 21st century, We've had advanced forms of imaging, functional MRI, which have localized mental states um, to certain brain regions. So a mental state are things like sensations. Um, you, you put your, your hand on a stove and it feels hot. Uh, emotions, you have anger or joy or different types of emotions. Thoughts, um, you're thinking about uh, NC State beating Clemson in football in two overtimes. Um, that would be a mental state. You have beliefs, um, 
desires, and acts of the will. These are different types of mental states, okay? And you can do a functional MRI and localize these things, okay? So you can, I don't put someone in a functional MRI and poke them with a, with a pin or something, and uh, you can see what areas of the brain light up. Uh, you can test romantic love. You can show someone a picture of someone that they that they are very fond of, and you can look at certain regions in the brain that light up, and you can localize those things. Uh, empathy, wisdom, and the like. So what do we make of these correlations in neuroscience? So what should we make between the correlations of mental states and brain states? Does everything essential to the human person localized to the brain. In other words, are we essentially just our brains? So Descartes thought that mental states reside with an immaterial substance, which was totally separate than the body, and that these two things interacted with each other. But entities should not be multiplied beyond necessity, and that's Occam's razor. So um, if you have one thing that explains all the data, there's no reason to posit a second thing. So if I'm riding my bicycle and I fall off of it and I hit my head, but I'm wearing a helmet so I don't sustain any injuries. And someone said, how did you not sustain any injuries? Well, I had a helmet on and my guardian angel protected me. So the guardian angel part would be superfluous. Okay. The helmet is a sufficient explanation. Okay. So if the brain explains your mental states, then there's no reason to posit a soul. It would be superfluous, okay? So that would be kind of how the argument would go here, okay? Uh, you, and, and this view has been around for a long time. So this is 2,500 years ago. This is Hippocrates. Men ought to know that from the brain and from the brain only arises our pleasures, joys, laughter, and jests, as well as our sorrows, pains, griefs, and tears. Through it, in particular, we think See, hear, and distinguish the ugly from the beautiful, the bad from the good, the pleasant from the unpleasant. So in other words, you're just your brain. So this has led many people to come to the idea of what's called physicalism. Okay, The mind is identical to the brain. They are one and the same thing. Humans are purely material. There is no immaterial component to our being. Specifically, there is no immaterial mind or soul. On this view, matter is purely quantitative. It can be measured. It has mass and it takes up space. And when reduced to physical base properties, there is no qualitative components to matter. So there's no color, there's no taste or odor when you reduce things to subatomic particles or atoms. Last, there is no teleology, so there's no goal-directedness of matter. Okay, it's particles in motion. So that's the view called physicalism. Uh, one of the theories that came out in 1956 by UT Place was the mind-brain identity theory, which has pretty much died off in philosophy, um, but in neuroscience it's alive and well, okay? So many neurologists, neurosurgeons, and such um, think this. So this is the mind-brain identity theory. So a mental state is identical to a brain state, okay? So if we talk about something like C-fibers, so a C-fiber, if I touch my, my hand on a hot stove, 
the C fiber activates, that sends signals from my arm into my spinal cord up to my brain, and I feel the sensation of pain, okay? But the idea here is that pain is the firing of C fiber, okay? Notice I didn't say that C fiber's firing cause pain. I said that pain is the firing of C fiber, okay? And I'll go into more depth on this. What does it mean for two things to be identical? If A is identical to B, then any property that A has will also be a property that B has and vice versa. So A and B are really the same thing, okay? So let me give you an example here to make this easier to understand. Okay, so uh, Clark Kent and Superman have all the same properties. Don't let the glasses fool you. They have all the same properties. Therefore, Clark Kent is Superman, okay? Um, Bruce Wayne has all the same properties as Batman. Bruce Wayne is Batman. They're identical. Um, a real-life example, um, Cassius Clay has all the same properties as Muhammad Ali. They're the same person. Okay, they're identical. Okay, if you guys, yeah, Muhammad Ali, you know, change his name. Yeah, okay. Um, a more complex example, um, so Puffy has all the same properties as Puff Daddy who has all the same properties as P. Diddy, who has all the same properties as Diddy, who has all the same properties as Sean John Combs, who has all the same properties as Sean Love Combs, okay? <laughs> These six names refer to the same very talented uh, rapper, okay? So does that make sense? Okay. So if we can find anything that is true about a mental state that is not true of a brain state, then the theory is wrong. Okay? They would not strictly be identical if we can find any differences. Okay? All right. So um, let's say I, um, one of you come to this talk, and um, I don't know, you're a guy, and you're single, and you see a lady here, and you fall in love. And it's like, you just met her, but you just know she's the one. Okay? And I'm a neuroscientist, and I'm, I'm really looking to do research, and I notice that you're just really spitting about this girl. And I say, hey, look, I'm doing a study here, and I need you to, to participate in this study. What we're going to do is I'm studying romantic love, and I'd like to put you in a functional MRI, and I'd like to find out all the areas in your brain that light up when you, take it, when you look at a picture of this girl, okay? So like you look at it, so you, so you say, yeah, sure, I'll do it. So you get in the functional MRI, you look at the picture of the girl, her, her image hits your retinal ganglion, you know, ganglion cells, and your caudate nucleus just starts to fire up, and, and uh, you say, wow, yeah, he really does love her. And um, so you talk to him after you say, hey, look, I know this sounds a little bizarre, but I'm going to uh, cut out all the areas of your brain that have to do with romantic love on this functional MRI, okay? And uh, he's a little bit worried, but you say, look, neuroplasticity, it's all going to be fine. You'll get it back. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take some therapy, but you're going to get it back. Okay? So I cut it out, and I, and I slap it on this table. And uh, Andrew walks by and says, hey, uh, Dr. Lepena, what's that? I say, uh, Andrew, that's love. I think you would see that there's a problem here, right? Uh, the essence of neural tissue that's on the table and the essence of, of love are two totally different things. So if you think about neural tissue, it has mass, length, width. It conducts electrical activity. It's located in space, meaning it can be to the right or to the left, other than neural tissue on top of, behind, all of that. So it has those properties. But what are the properties of love? Does love have 
length and width. If, if you're a poet, it probably does, but uh, in reality, it doesn't. Does love conduct electrical activity? Is it located in space? Can it be to the right or to the left of hatred? Um, love is directed outward. It has intentionality. It's about someone else. Um, it's, it's directed outward. But can a physical thing like my water bottle be directed outward? Can the table be directed outward? Can um, a neuron be directed outward? Can neurotissue be about something else? Uh, it seems very unlikely. In addition, um, you believe, although we said you just met this girl, you believe that you really love her. You think that that's true. But can a physical thing be true or false? Can a table be true or can a table be false or a water bottle? It doesn't make any sense, right? So the, the properties are vastly different, okay? Um, another one that really kind of killed it in philosophy was with this, you, you made these things called bridge laws. So you would say that pain is the firing of C fibers in all possible situations, okay? All possible situations, pain is the firing of C fibers. Okay, so if someone's in pain, their C fibers are firing. Okay, but dogs can be in pain and they don't have C fibers. So strictly speaking, in all possible situations, pain is not the firing of C fibers. Okay, it may be identical to some other physical thing that's species specific, but that's not what identity theory is trying to claim. And that's, that's probably really what killed the theory. So there are other uh, forms of physicalism. And um, so there's behaviorism. That was maybe the first theory that came out, didn't last very long. Uh, functionalism, which is still somewhat popular today. And eliminative materialism. I don't have time to go through all of these. It would take like several lectures, but there are other forms of physicalism as well. I picked the one that I think neuroscience, uh, neuroscientists typically uh, kind of believe um, and, and talked about that one. But there are arguments against all forms of physicalism. And the arguments are really fun if you've never done them before, but there are Arguments from subjectivity, um, what are called qualia, and intentional properties. So matter does not have those properties. It doesn't have subjectivity, doesn't have qualitative properties, and doesn't have intentional properties. But the human person does. Therefore, a person cannot be purely material. So that's the idea here. Uh, I can maybe give one example of one of them. They're, they're fun. If you ever do philosophy of mind, they're, they're fun to read about. Um, it's probably not the best one, but I think it's the most fun one. So... Uh, there's this, there's this woman, her name's Mary. She's fictional, but she's really smart. Mary um, lives in a black and white room. Okay, and this is from Frank Jackson came up with. But Mary lives in a black and white room. Okay? Everything in the room is black and white. They painted her skin white. Her hair is black. Um, there's no mirrors, so she can't see any color on her face or anything like that. Uh, so everything she's ever experienced is black and white. But Mary is a brilliant neuroscientist, and she spends her whole life studying vision, okay? Uh, Neuroelectrophysiology, all those things. She knows every fact about vision. She, she knows about retinal ganglion cells and bipolar cells, and she knows um, about photoreceptors and how all those things work and how the retinal ganglion cells become the optic nerves, which cross over at the chiasm and then become the optic tracts, the lateral geniculate nucleus, and then into the superior and inferior optic radiations and how they go back to the occipital lobe. And she knows every single physical fact about vision. And then one day, Mary leaves the room and she opens the door and she sees a red fire truck go by. 
Mary already knew every physical fact about red, but now she's seen red for the first time. But she already knew all the physical facts. Did Mary learn something new? I think we would say, yes, Mary learned something new. But she already knew all the physical facts. Therefore, there must be something beyond and above the physical. So that's how that argument goes. And there's a bunch of different ones for intentionality and subjectivity and things like that. And they're, they're fun to read about. And the philosophers debate their validity or, or their soundness anyways. All right. The last thing is that correlation does not imply identity. So, for example, we know that high blood pressure is correlated with stroke, but that does not mean that high blood pressure is a stroke, okay? High blood pressure causes stroke. So, neuroscience can differentiate between mental state, or neuroscience cannot differentiate between mental states being identical to brain states or brain states being in a cause and effect relationship with mental states. It cannot differentiate between those two things. And neuroscientists, as technology gets better, we're going to continue to find more correlations between mental states and brain states, but identity can never be established if the properties are different. So this isn't primarily a neuroscience issue, it's a philosophical issue. So this has led many to, you know, reject physicalism and come to different theories about the mind, so that the brain generates the mind. Okay, so there's a couple of views here. So Epiphenomenalism is one of them. So I have a pretty old car. I'm going to explain what epiphenomenalism is. So I have like a pretty old car. And when I start it, the uh, belts will squeak. So it makes a sound. Okay. But that's a byproduct of the belt, the sound. Okay. It, it, it kind of gets shot off. But it doesn't in turn have any effect on my car. Right. It just annoys the other doctors and the physicians parking lot. And they're like, that guy has a real job. Why does he still drive a, a wagon? Um, sometimes when I start it, a little puff of smoke comes out the back, some exhaust. And um, again, an epiphenomenon. It doesn't, it just, it, it doesn't have any effect on my car. It just pollutes the atmosphere. Um, I usually ride my bike though. It's uh, so. Um, so the idea here is that the mind is causally inert but it's a byproduct of the brain. So the brain like produces the mind, but the mind in turn has no effect on the body. It's called epiphenomenalism, okay? Uh, but this seems very clearly false. So for example, what we call psychosomatic disorders. So people have disorders in which they have high levels of anxiety, stress, depression, but they get physical symptoms from that. So if you're really saying this, this epiphenomenalism thing, that it's really this immaterial thing, that it shouldn't have physical effects, but people do get physical effects from this. As a neurologist, I see people coming in with stroke-like symptoms or seizure-like symptoms. We get EEGs, we get MRIs, we do everything. Everything's normal, okay? So what do we do with these folks? Well, we send them to cognitive behavioral therapy and they learn how to think in a different way. And that changes the brain through neuroplasticity and they get better. So epiphenomalism just seems wrong. I mean, if you have the belief that it's raining outside, you extend your arm and you get an umbrella. Okay, that belief causes physical things to occur in your body. So it just seems like that's just a terrible theory. Emergentism is another theory. So when the brain reaches a certain level of complexity, and the brain is very complex, 86 billion neurons, um, when it gets this complexity, a new entity arises with different properties. Okay, so on this view, the emergent properties or substance has causal roles. It can somehow kind of turn around and have an effect on the brain. 
But one may ask, how does the electrochemical stuff give rise to mentality and consciousness? And this is the so-called hard problem of consciousness that was um, coined by David Chalmers. And here's a quote, that the movement of matter can manifest mentality is the magical miracle that makes materialism a sect, not a science. And that's from Peter Hostet, I think I'm pronouncing that right, who's a philosopher. Um, and then if it is produced, then how does that immaterial thing then turn around and have an effect on the brain? That seems very difficult to explain as well. So both those theories have some issues with them. Okay. So maybe we're back to Cartesian dualism. We talked about Descartes. So maybe we're back to Cartesian dualism. Uh, and this is that uh, the mind and brain are two separate substances, one over here, one over here, and they interact somehow, okay? And this has been a, a view that's been held by some very prominent uh, neuroscientists and neurosurgeons. So Wilder Penfield, the guy who did the craniotomy, we talked about him, he noticed two things when he did this. He could stimulate just about anything in the brain, but there were two things he could not stimulate. He couldn't stimulate the intellect, and he couldn't stimulate the will. So he could move their arm, but the person would always say, you moved my arm. I didn't move my arm, you moved my arm. He could never get someone to believe anything or, or cause anything intellectual to occur in the brain when he stimulated different parts of the brain. So he said, it just it can't be a physical thing. Um, I would hold that's a bad argument, but we can get to that later. Um, John Eccles and Charles Sherrington are both famous neurophysiologists. They won the Nobel Prize, um, and, and they were both Cartesian dualists as well. There are some very prominent philosophers, uh, William Lane Craig, J.P. Moreland, Alvin Plantinga, uh, who are Cartesian dualists. Uh, so there are some very smart and bright people who hold this view. But I think it's a difficult view. I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's a difficult view. Again, uh, you have this immaterial non-extended mind that somehow interacts with an extended body comprised of matter. So when we think about how things interact in this world, we think about physical forces, like things pushing and pulling on each other, right? So how can something immaterial and material interact? And in what way does this occur? It, it seems impossible. Uh, and this is the, called the interaction problem. And that's haunted dualism since the time of Descartes. So, so Descartes postulated this theory and then Princess Elizabeth um, wrote him a letter saying, this doesn't make any sense. How can these two things, and he's, he never had an answer to it. Um, so um, now some people do think they have answers to this, like Alvin Plantagon, so you, you could listen to that. And, and there are some intelligent people that hold this view. Some people don't think it happened. They've, they've come up with other ideas like parallelism. This is the idea that like God, if you imagine you have like two clocks and you set both of them to the exact same time and then let go, and then they just run at the exact same time in parallel. Well, one idea is like the brain and the mind actually don't interact. They just always run in parallel. So whenever you see something going on in the mind, you also see it in the brain because God like set it up that way. Um, and then there's occasionalism as well. This just kind of goes against common sense. So, uh, so anyways, there's some issues with Cartesian dualism. All right, so if we make a reflection on the correlations between mental states and brain states. Um, so if we, if we reflect on this, um, so we do these functional MRIs and we see certain areas of the brain light up when we show you pictures of someone you love and all that kind of stuff, uh, or when you're thinking. But it's, just, it's surprising information. So if, if I like just found a, some random guy on the street and I said, hey, uh, do you think your brain is doing something when you're thinking? 
would assume the person would say yes, right? I mean, that's, that's not a startling discovery at all. Um, or if I asked, do you think a particular area in your brain is more active when you're doing a particular activity or a particular thought? I think most people would say yes to that. And I think everyone's you know, pretty much thought this for a long time. So the functional MRI shows this, but I don't think that's surprising at all. Um, I think when people look at this data, a physicalist would expect this, right? They think only, only material things exist. So they say, yeah, sure, you know, this is a great example. A dualist, uh, a Cartesian dualist, would think that um, the mind is, uh, or, or the brain, uses the mind as an instrument to think, just like a pianist uses a piano to play music. So they would expect these correlations too. It wouldn't be surprising to them at all. An idealist who thinks that only immaterial things exist, there are no material things that really exist, just immaterial things that exist, and all material things like chairs and tables, it's just a projection of the mind, okay? So it's almost like the, the movie The Matrix. Um, everything's just a projection of the mind. And this is just an excellent example for projection of the mind on these, on these images, right? So there are many things that you could look at this neuroscientific data and come to all sorts of different conclusions. The brain is identical to the mind. The mind, you know, the brain generates the mind. The brain and mind are two separate substances interacting. The brain and mind run in parallel but don't, do not interact. So neuroscience, I think, leaves open most of these possibilities. So I don't think it, it can tell us that the mind is identical to the brain. Um, it's important to note that correlations raise questions typically rather than providing answers. Okay? All right. So I don't think this is primarily a neuroscience issue, but rather a philosophical issue. But philosophically, it is very difficult to reduce the mind to the brain and say they're identical because the properties of matter and the properties of the mind are so different. The same problem also shows up when you try to explain how the brain can produce something radically different than itself. And because of the radical differences between the mind and matter, it is hard to see, if they both exist, how they could interact. But what if we think of the natural world differently? Perhaps the things of nature are not just quantitative particles in motion. Okay, maybe there's more to nature than that. And um, that's exactly what people like Aristotle thought, okay? So if you look at uh, an older metaphysics, so metaphysics has to do with what's real, what's real in reality, okay? What constitutes reality, okay? So Aristotle had a much more rich view of nature. So the easiest way to introduce Aristotle, I think, is the four causes. So if you think about something like this table right here, it has four causes to Aristotle. There's a material cause, which is the wood that makes up the table. It has a formal cause. So that's the structure and the shape. So it's rectangular. It has a flat surface. It has four legs. Okay. There's the efficient cause, the thing that brought it about. So... Uh, a carpenter probably did not make this table, but um, so a factory or something like that, some set of tools have made this table. That's the efficient cause of the thing. And then the final cause, okay, the purpose of the thing. So the purpose of this table is to eat or study at or something like that or, or to hold my stuff, okay? So he, when he looked at like a particular thing in nature or an artifact like a table, 
uh, he saw the four causes. So he saw this kind of more holistic view of things. He saw form as that which directs, organizes, and forms, and unifies matter to make a thing what it's supposed to be. And then he saw final causality. So in, in, in the universe, Aristotle saw purpose running through the whole thing, that all things act towards an end. Even inanimate objects act towards an end. Not because they have intelligence within them, but they naturally work towards an end. An acorn naturally becomes an oak tree. Things like that. Okay? So he had this much wider view of, of metaphysics. Okay? And if you get to uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, many, many years later, uh, he was an Aristotelian and, uh, and, and kind of used Aristotelian concepts in his philosophy and theology. But he saw the human person as one substance composed of form and matter. Okay? He saw the soul as a particular type of form. Okay? So it's it directs and organizes and informs and unifies the matter of a living thing to become that which it is intended to be. And he thought that all living things have souls. So not just people, but anything living. Um, plants, uh, animals, people, anything that's living has a soul. For him, the soul was just that which makes something animate. Okay, it's the difference between a living thing and a not living thing. Okay. Uh, and on this view... Qualitative properties and intentionality in humans would just be consistent with humans having form and displaying final causality. Okay? So he would not think that the soul is some separate immaterial substance inexplicably interacting with a material body. He wouldn't see it as a byproduct or an emergent property of the brain that just arises from the complexity of the brain. He saw it as the first principle of life and those things which live. So he believed that humans were unique, though. So all living things have a soul, uh, but humans have a rational soul, okay? And that rational soul gives us the capacity to reason and to will, okay? And he believed that through philosophical argumentation that although the form of a living thing is typically not immaterial, there were two components in human beings which must be immaterial, and he had philosophical arguments for this, saying that the intellect and will must be immaterial. They're very difficult arguments to understand, but he gives two arguments on how, in principle, the intellect and the will cannot be uh, material things. Uh, and he thought that these capacities of the soul and of the whole human person is what makes us distinct, what makes us created in the image of God, according to Aquinas. So if I can maybe make a reflection, so um, I'm, you know, I'm not a philosopher, I'm a, I'm a neurologist, um, so I'm not a metaphysician, I'm a physician, and, um, but I figured I'd maybe just give you a, like a, a perspective of a doctor, um, of a physician who just like deals with people on a regular basis. So this is a picture of me uh, during the pandemic. And um, if you look down there, that's a physician during the bubonic plague. And it's not like drastically different, is it, right? I mean, um, it's, it's not a difference in kind, just a difference in degree. 
Uh, I don't know what the staff he's holding is for, or the wand, or whatever that whatever that did. Um, but yeah, you know, it's pretty similar, right? So that was like uh, 800 years ago or so. 1350s was uh, bubonic plague reached its peak and killed something like 50% of the European population. It took like two or 300 years for uh, Europe to repopulate from that pandemic. Um, but pandemics are terrible. Um, you know, I can kind of speak firsthand. It's, I work in the hospital and uh, during the two peaks of the pandemic so far, uh, it's just hard. It's hard to be a healthcare provider. It's hard to be a doctor. And um, so you're wearing all this stuff all day. So this Honeywell mask that I have on just digs into your face all day to where by the end of the day you have bruises and your skin starts to denude. And, and um, you know, it, it's just you're sweating all day. It takes forever to see patients because you have to take it off, clean it, put it back on or keep it on and clean it on your face or have someone else clean it, put the PPE off, put new PPE on. Uh, really hard. And then also hard interacting with the patients, right? So you can imagine these folks are very sick, they're sleeping, and you have to go in, you got to wake them up, and you look like Darth Vader. And, and it's, it's like terrifying, right? Um, so I, yeah, it's been rough, a lot of physician burnout. So like the nurses and the physicians are just tired. Like there's another wave of this pandemic. I just don't know um, how much more the healthcare providers can do. Um, it's exhausting. Uh, but this is nothing compared to the patients who are suffering. Um, you know, just I've just never seen so much death uh, in the last year and a half. I mean, just countless patients have died uh, under my, you know, under our care. And um, I usually get called in during these cases when COVID has had neurological sequelae. So they formed a large clot in their brain, their venous system or their arterial system. And they've had a large bleed or a stroke. And um, it's, it's been hard. Um, you know, when I left residency, I said, you know, I want to work. Um, I want to be a different type of doctor. And I want to work at a place where I can uh, practice medicine in a way that I want to practice medicine. I want to practice medicine in a way that I can treat the whole person, the whole person. So let's say someone comes to me and they have epilepsy and uh, I give them some levetiracetam, seizure medicine, and uh, they're seizure free. But they come back to me on the next visit and they're, um, they have terrible depression and they're in an existential crisis. They've lost meaning in life and all this type of stuff. And I said, well, have you had any seizures? Said, no. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll see you in six months. Uh, would, would I be a good doctor? No, I'd be a terrible doctor. I'd be a terrible doctor, right? So um, you have to treat the whole person, okay? So um, no, you have to you have to treat their their mental health. You have to treat their spiritual health. You have to you have to treat their bodies. You have to treat the whole individual, okay? Um, so when you know during the pandemic, I can like come up with countless examples, but. Uh, I've just like felt this, okay, I always wanted to be a different doctor. Now's the time. Now's the time to really, you know, dive in there. I mean, I go into these rooms and their family can't visit them. They're on precautions. Uh, they don't have technology to Skype or, or all those types of things. So, so I go in these rooms and say, I'm the only thing that this person, I'm the, I'm the one person that this person has right now. So how can I fulfill my role as a physician? So, on one occasion, I got consulted on a 90-year-old woman 
And I walked in and um, we hooked her up to electroencephalography. And we saw that uh, she was in status epilepticus, was non-convulsive status epilepticus. So that's when the brain is seizing. The brain is having a continuous seizure, but the body's not doing anything. The body's not shaking or anything like that. So I treat her. I get her out of status epilepticus. And, uh, but now she's just barely more conscious, and she's just moaning in terrible pain. Family can't come and see her. Uh, the chaplains can't come in and pray for her because of COVID restrictions, all these types of things. So I left the room. And um, I had all this stuff on, and I, I say I just felt this oceanic tug, you know, to go back in and see her. So I, I got my PPE off. I just put on more simple stuff, N95 and a face shield and eye protection, and went back in. And um, so I go back in there, and, you know, she's obtunded. So I, I'm by the side of her bed, and I, I hold her hand. And as I usually do, I do the sign of the cross on the forehead, and I pray for them. So I have my eyes closed and I'm praying for her and um, I open my eyes and she's staring right at me, wide awake, just staring right at me. And um, she's trying to tell me something, but she has no strength to speak. She just keeps trying to tell me things. So I'm trying to say yes and no questions. She nods her head, but I just, I can't figure out what she's trying to say. So anyways, I try to figure out through yes and no questions what her favorite TV show is which is like days of our lives. So I find it, it's on, so I put it on. And, uh, but anyway, she keeps looking at me. She's not looking at the TV and she's trying to mouth something. So I, I walk to the door and as clear as day, I hear her say, thank you. And it just was so beautiful. And I left the room and, you know, I still reflect, you know, what is the human person? Like this 90 year old woman, who is this? Uh, what are we, uh, you know? Um, is she just her brain? No, she has a brain. You, you can't, no. Uh, is she her mind? No, she has a mind. You can't be what you possess. You can't be one of your parts. She's a whole person. She's irreducible, okay? Um, as Aquinas says, a human being is composed of this soul, of this flesh, and of these bones. It's a whole person, okay? So, you know, I, and you just believe that. I mean, I, I work with medical students. One of the favorite things about working with medical students is that they have this idea, which I think is true, that all people are equal and worthy of dignity. Okay? But where does such a belief come from? Can you be a materialist and believe that? If people are purely quantitative, if everything's quantitative and can be reduced to its physical base properties... Well, no two people have the same amount of atoms in the whole world. So how can they be equal? On what grounds are they equal? I don't think you can get there. I just don't. So like, what is it about this person that makes her have the same dignity and her end of life that I have now and that you, all of you have? What, what constitutes that? What's the foundation of it? Okay. So, you know, what I would propose here is that adopting something like an Aristotelian or Thomistic metaphysics, um, where you see something as an irreducible thing that can't be broken down into its basic parts, and that if you see a person having a soul, and if every human being has a soul, 
that is a good equalizing factor, especially if in the capacities of the soul were created in the image of God, then I would say that that is a firm foundation for equality amongst all people, okay? We all have souls. And by that, and I think everyone in this room has this impulse, like um, someone who's uh, white, black, Asian, um, if they're, you know, uh, financially doing well, or if they're poor, if they have an intellectual disability, or they're a genius, somehow we see equality amongst all these people, right? I, I think so, right? I, I mean, my students do, and I love that about them. But I think it's the soul that grounds that, okay? And that's what I would put out there today, uh, that, that at least you contemplate this idea.